0: Thank you. Hi everybody and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and every week we scour the internet looking for interesting books and we interview the authors of those books. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Jonathan Rausch on the show and we'll be talking about his book Denial: My 25 Years Without a Soul. This was a very interesting book for me to read. Jonathan and I are about the same age. Uh we we had very different experiences as as y- youth, I would say, um though in a weird sort of way uh, equally painful. <laughs> I
1: don't know how I, means, Marshall, you would be amazed how often I hear that my growing up gay in denial yeah, experience yeah. is relevant to straight people. Yeah, I, I was I'm totally
0: straight, but man, oh man, that was a tough time to be alive. So uh anyway, Jonathan, maybe you could begin the interview <laughs> by by uh telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, I am a uh, a writer. I'm fifty-three years old, just turned. I Grew up in Phoenix, Arizona in the 60s and 70s in a time when we didn't know much about homosexuality and spent the first 25 years of my life dealing with all that. I went on to become a successful journalist and I write a lot about gay marriage and public policy and have written on everything from animal rights and number inflation to to taxes and spending. Um, So, you know, I'm one of these Washington talking head types, but... um, (laughs) Beyond all that, I'm, I'm human and I'm a writer, um, and yeah. when the time came to sort out what had happened in the first, really, entire half of my life, I, I turned to words. Yeah,
0: well, that's a, it's an excellent book, and it's very interesting. I'm glad that you mentioned that you are also a person, in addition to being a writer, because one of the things we try to do on the network is point out to people, I guess they already know this, that books don't just fall from the sky, neither do magazine articles. Actual people write them. Real people.
1: Yes. Some of them even hope to get paid for it. Yeah,
0: right. So anyway, tell us why you wrote uh, Denial, My 25 Years Without a Soul.
1: The best way to answer that is to tell you what it's about, which is that I spent my entire first 25 years, and that is literally almost 50% of my life, in this form of something that's not even the closet about homosexuality. The closet is when you're denying to the outside world who you are, and maybe to yourself to some extent, but, but there's another phase, which I call inversion, and that's when you're in such complete denial to yourself that you turn the whole rest of the world upside down in an effort to deny any possibility that you're gay. So, for me at least, in my version of this, love became hate, and attraction became envy, and childhood became something that could never end. Um, that went on for 25 years, Marshall. And it was, I tell people, I call it inversion because it's like living in a photographic negative. It's all logical. You know, A flows into B and B flows into C and it's all completely backwards. And then one day it's as if a photographic positive is made and suddenly you see the way things are supposed to look and the world turns right side up. And, and that's what happened to me when I was 25. Mm-hmm. So about Ten years went by when I tried to get past all of that and did to some extent. But I realized that, that that whole 25 years, that whole incredible experience, you know, crazy as it was, had been valuable in some ways and interesting and that it was vanishing like a dream. Mm-hmm. You know how you you try to hold on to dreams and sometimes you even write them down, but they still elude your grasp. Mm-hmm. They still fade that was happening in 25 years of my life. So in my late 30s, I decided to just write down what happened, start at the beginning right through to the end, um, and tell it to myself. There was no audience for this book originally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why this book was written. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why the tone is so naked, yeah. so very exposed. Did you Did
0: you find it difficult to write all this down?
1: No. Mm-hmm. It. I'm usually one of these neurotically craftsman-like writers. Mm-hmm. Um, everything gets outlined. Everything gets thought through. Right. Um, this almost just happened, mm-hmm. um, and writing is never easy in the sense that it's automatic. Um, but this was more like an experience of a voice channeling through me than almost any other writing experience I've had. Mm-hmm. And then I showed it to a few people when I was done, and they all said, publish it. Yeah, sure. I wasn't sure. Um, but in those days, I couldn't publish it because mm-hmm. um, it it's, it's short. It's, only, it's under 30,000 words, and in those days, that was too short for a book but too long for an article. So I set it aside and decided that it would be a record for myself um, and came back to it finally when, when eBooks hit the scene. And a yeah. couple people said, you know, you really should do something with that.
0: All right. Well, this is terrific. I think that you know it's a obviously a wonderful book in many ways, but I also think it's terrific that you published it in the way you published it. And as you mentioned in the pre-interview, it's published in a new imprint, Atlantic Books. So, and it's available all over the place online. You can get it for your yeah. ebook reader. It's very easy to get.
1: And it's only, may I say, a dollar ninety nine, which right. is less than coffee at Starbucks. Right. <laughs> really? Yeah. For authors who are used to to seeing. 20, $25 prices for their right, books. Right, exactly. Is, this is an
0: adjustment. You so. have $25, you know, academic books can be over 100 So anyway, you and I are both from the age in which you could get a, a cup of coffee for a quarter, right? So this, yeah. this is, remember, this the 60s and 70s. I guess I'm a little bit interested, you know, I, I was, when I was reading the book, I was comparing my experience to yours. I grew up in Kansas, and uh, I just wasn't really aware that homosexuality existed. I tell you honestly, and I know that I had gay, my, my mother's best friend was a gay guy. I know this now, uh, but I, I had no idea that homosexuality existed at all, really. Um, so I, was it like that in Phoenix for you? I mean, did you, I,
1: I knew it existed and I was politically liberal and I had no problem with it. My mother was, um, had gay friends and I knew that as a teenager, though, though not when I was younger and I wasn't homophobic, um. So to this day, I ask myself why I would turn my entire personality inside out in order to deny the very possibility that I might be gay. Um, and I don't know the answer to that, Marshall, but, but the closest thing I have to an answer is long before I knew that I was gay or even what gay meant, or even what sexuality was when I was very young, something in me understood that I could never get married and have a family. I didn't know why, but that was a desolating realization. Kids understand marriage and family, and they want what their parents have if they're lucky enough to have happily married parents. Um, and I felt suddenly like I was on a slow boat to China, waving goodbye as the shore drifted away behind me. You know, life would just separate me from the things I cared most about. And even as a little kid, I understood that, and I think more than anything, that's what I was fighting. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you have anyone um, that you could talk to about these feelings, or did you just keep them to yourself?
1: I mean, there were people I could have talked to, but I never imagined talking to anyone because as this developed, you know, it started when I'm a little kid, and I don't know what's going on, except that I'm getting little kid crushes on guys. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then, I got to be about 13, and things change. The crushes become overwhelming, yeah. and the physical evidence, as any man listening to this show will attest, becomes oh, yeah. becomes very, very obvious. Mm-hmm. Your body is telling you what's going on, and it becomes a real challenge to deny what's going on. Plus, I felt just head over heels, crazy in love with a kid my age named Paul, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of this book is about that. So... I had a lot of work to do to deny what was going on, so I, I used, I told myself first it was a stage and I'd pass through it, and of course that didn't happen, and then I told myself what I was experiencing was a form of envy, um, and then I decided that, well, I had a strange tropical disease, I'd been born <laughs> without the capacity to love anyone, because you know, love involved like sex with women, and I knew I wasn't going to do that, Um. So I had been born without the capacity to love, and instead I had this strange obsession with muscles, mm-hmm. not with men. I mean, I didn't want to have sex with one, um, or so I told myself. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know what that meant. So I thought I had a kind of sickness that had never been seen before in human history. And if it, I thought I had to keep this an extreme secret. Um, because I didn't want to be sent to the loony bin, and I didn't want to be repaired. And somehow I kept hoping that through it all, it would go away. You know, I'd find myself in bed with the right woman, maybe an older woman, who could show me the ropes, and all the hormones would would light up. You know, my body would know what to do. Um, I held out for that for over two decades. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Didn't work.
0: I'm very interested in this early period before you're 13 and you get the kind of physical urges and manifestation because one of the things you say in the book is you develop this, I guess what we would call an obsession or fascination with kind of large muscle bound guys or guys a little bit older than you who were athletic or something like this. Um, I have to tell you that I had those same fantasies. I mean, I I was and I wasn't gay at all, but I really wanted to be like those people. I can remember specific guys. I'm like, I want to be like him.
1: Well, I think for most boys, there is a natural tendency to want to be an alpha male yeah. and to dominate and to be big and muscular. And I think I think boys tend to fantasize about dominating the world, and that's why straight kids have these often very intense obsession with superheroes. Yeah. Um, but when you're gay and that happens it takes on a whole additional erotic dimension uh-huh. which complicates things much <laughs> yeah, further as you can imagine yeah i imagine
0: yeah so you weren't bullied i mean you mentioned bullying at school you were bullied a little doesn't seem like more than
1: yeah a yeah, little not very much yeah
0: but i mean you know i think people have this image of a uh, you know again these are all stereotypes uh, of a kid that's a little bit let's use this term fey but that doesn't seem it doesn't seem like you were that way I mean,
1: I- no, I was an Uber nerd. Yeah. People assume that I had no sex life because I was too nerdy, and that's that was another of my excuses. I'm too busy. I'm too studious. Um, I was physically underdeveloped for my age. I was very slow, so I thought, well, you know, I'm just I'm just running behind other people. Uh-huh. Um, but anything but but gay. You know, yeah, it right. wouldn't have occurred to most kids that I would be gay. So, to the extent I was bullied, it wasn't for that. It was for being a weakling.
0: Yeah. So, let's just be totally clear about this. You knew what it was to be gay, but you were telling yourself you weren't gay.
1: I was telling myself I wasn't gay. If it ever came up, I would very securely, blithely say, no, of course not. It did come up. In high school, I began, uh, I got very close to when I was 17, a girl who was 17, who was vivacious and And smart, and we got to be good friends. And then we got to be spending long evenings together in her room talking and even holding hands. And then one night we went out to the banks of the canal in Phoenix and um, we kissed. And we kissed for a very long time or what seemed to be a very long time because it was for me like waiting for a bus to come Um, except one of those buses that never does come. Um, I, I remember, you know, we pressed lips together, and it had nothing happened for me, absolutely nothing. And I remember thinking, well, is something supposed to happen? Um, and that was the last time we ever tried anything like that. Soon afterwards, she said, she took me aside one day at night and said, you know, I've been thinking, and I talked to my parents about it, and. They think so, too. Uh, we think you might be gay. Oh. No. Her dad was a minister. So, um, at one level, I was, I was actually just very surprised. Why would anyone think that? I mean, I thought I was the person who could never have a love life or experience sexuality. So, of course, I couldn't be gay. Um, she, of course, she went to school with me. She had noticed my obsession with this, this boy, Paul. Um, soon after that, um, our friendship broke up, and um, you can imagine why. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So, I'm trying to, I'm a little bit tongue-tied, because it, it seems like the evidence is overwhelming that to yourself that you are gay, but you can't put that, that peg in that round hole.
1: Yeah, it's just the opposite. This is why I call it an inversion, Marshall. In order to to deny that completely, and a lot of people do, not just me. I've been getting cards and letters since this was published.
0: Oh, I, sure, yeah. Um,
1: even from some straight people who said they were in denial, but about other things. What you have to do to, to wage this kind of intense war against this most important part of your personality, the part that loves, is you have to invert everything else. You have to tell yourself stories in which, well, what is it? You know, why am I getting erections when I see athletic guys, well, I envy them mm-hmm. because they're athletic and I'm not. And some some miswiring in my circuitry, some disease I have, is translating my envy into an erection. Mm-hmm. Um, well, love, I could never experience love, so I thought because you know what i what I was feeling could have nothing to do with love. So it was like living in this in this bizarre upside-down world uh, and I had I had no end of explanations
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. being a smart kid
1: yeah yeah it's kind of a curse to be a smart kid yeah, in something right like this. well yeah. I envy some of these kids who you know who just maybe they're closeted and maybe they had problems with bullying and and parents and you know terrible things can happen if you're young and gay but you know, at least they're out there in the park getting some experience at age 15 or right. 16. And, and they kind of know who they are. Um, 25 years is a long time to lose. Yeah. You know, I missed my adolescence. Right, right. I had to catch up with all of that as best I could right. in my 20s and 30s.
0: Right. But you weren't, I mean, as you say, you weren't really even in the closet. You weren't right. anywhere near right. the closet. Yeah, I went, right,
1: I went right through the closet. When, I, <laughs> right. when yeah. my inversion ended, it was... Um, I just came out right away.
0: Yeah, right, um, yeah.
1: And it was so sudden and so dramatic. It was like, um, there used to be these psychology experiments where you'd put someone in goggles that made them see the world upside down. Oh, yeah. And for a day or two or whatever, they would be completely disoriented. And then they'd wake up one morning and the world would look right side up because the brain would have flipped a switch and readjusted. Mm-hmm. So that's what it was like. Uh, It was like when, when I finally couldn't sustain the illusion. This this prison basement, you know, with these thick walls and this complete isolation that I've been in, that seemed so impenetrable, it melted away. And suddenly, these things that I thought were just insane, you know, I'm I'm attracted to men with muscles. So when I finally told a gay person, I'm attracted to men with muscles. I mean, he just laughed and yeah, said, aren't I we all? I, I suddenly realized, not only was I not unique and afflicted with the disease, I was a cliché. There were millions of people <laughs> like me. Um, so I don't know I,
0: which is worse. Well, I do know which is worse, <laughs> but they're both. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I just, yeah, the closet, I never experienced the closet of trying to live yeah. life knowing that I was living a lot. Right.
0: That's amazing, because when you mentioned going right through the, closet, uh, the thing that occurs to me is the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, where they go through the closet and instantly they're in this new world that's very right. vibrant and bright, you know, and it's getting a little bit like that. So can you tell us a little bit about, uh, um, uh, you know, a- after you leave Phoenix, you go on to college, and uh, one of the things that happens to you is somebody falls in love with you. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> This yeah. must have
0: been very freaky. I have to say, even if it, was, reg- I mean, if it were, I mean, even heterosexual, I mean, it would be freaky. But go ahead. Well, I look
1: back on some of the things that happen uh, that are in the book. It's, although in many ways, it's a very naked, intense, um, sometimes harrowing book. It's also, I think, pretty funny. Um, some of the some of the things that happened were as if calculated by the mm-hmm. cosmic jokes. Um, and one of them was that when I was eighteen and a freshman in college and oh i haven 't told you the biggest explanation I had, and the oh, most ahead. destructive was that I decided that the reason that I was um, incapable of loving anyone is because I was so ugly and freakish and monstrous looking <laughs> yeah. that no one could possibly love me yeah. and that, that um, so I developed a profound aversion to the way I thought I looked yeah. so I'm 18, and I have that syndrome, and I appear in college, and a 50-something-year-old classicist who I have a class with falls in love with me head over heels, Um, and um, he develops a desperate crush on me, and his crush is so desperate that he's reacting to me the way I react to this kid, Paul. You can see it, you know, the flushed face, and... You can't see the elevated pulse but you know it's going on. And and this was kind of strange um, because why would anyone have a crush on me? Mm-hmm. I don't have muscles. I look like, you know, when I was 18 I looked probably 16 or 15 completely smooth and and um, I had acne and curvature of the spine and bow legs and so, so that just seemed very, very strange to me um, and you know, he tried to do stuff with me, but I repelled him, and, and he stopped. Um, and I did one thing for him, which I think people should read the book to find out. It was a birthday gift I gave him. Um, but it was a very strange birthday gift. And the whole experience, on the one hand, made me feel maybe someone could find me beautiful after all. But on the other hand, this is the kind of person who finds me beautiful? Mm-hmm. Um So um, the second, even the really comical experience looking back, is this could only happen, you know, to me, is when the first time in my life I finally had the opportunity to have sex with a woman, I was 20 years old, Mm -hmm. and I had assumed that my body would know what to do, Um, and this is this 17-year-old, college student and we get into my room and I get as far as taking my clothes off I have no idea what to do there's no mm-hmm. sex chemistry at all um, and she looks me up and down when she sees me in my underwear and says you know your legs look like you just got out of Auschwitz <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's really, yeah, that's in the big book of extraordinary turnoffs, even if you're heterosexual. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, you know, it was kind of a relief because I didn't want to have sex with her, yeah. and now I had an excuse. Yeah,
0: really, I should say. But, no. <laughs>
1: wow,
0: that's, yeah, that sounds horrible. But you must have known a lot of uh, g- g- gay people in college.
1: Well, it turns out half of my circle in college yeah. was gay, but this was in the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah. And- A lot of us hadn't come to terms with it, um, and anyone who had wasn't talking about it. The one exception was my roommate, um, my second, no, third year in college, who um, came out on the front page of the student newspaper as president of the gay student group. He'd been my roommate. He hadn't told me he was gay. And I remember at the time how much I admired his courage um, while thinking all through it, well, it has nothing to do with me. I'm not gay. Mm-hmm. But part of me even then knew, you know, I had a reckoning coming.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's and talk. It, it yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, let's talk about that reckoning.
1: Um, by the time I was 23, 24, out of college, starting life as a young adult, as a newspaper reporter, but still with the emotional life of a child, I'd never had sex, I'd never had a girlfriend, I'd never dated, I'd never kissed apart from that one you know strange night Um, my childhood it now seemed to me would go on forever I would never cross the bridge into adulthood which is the bridge to a loving erotic life with someone that you can commit yourself to Mm -hmm. it ultimately leads to marriage marriage is the destination for love and there was no thing like that for me and at 23 I had to realized that the hormonal switch was never going to flip and that now I was physically an adult and none of the physical stuff was happening and never would. And I, part of me started to realize I had a pretty bleak choice. I could stay in this eternal limbo of childhood forever. And some people do, by the way, Marshall. Oh, I know. Um, Or something would have to change. And when I was, I guess, 24, I started finding myself flirting a little bit with the idea that maybe I was attracted to the men and not just fetishizing their muscles. And I I had my first conversation with a, a close friend who was gay who had never mentioned sexuality because he knew that I would run away until then. And I described that when when I was around this now man, Paul, who by then had developed into a, you know, very muscular weightlifter, um, that that all I wanted was to see him with his shirt off and that my pulse raced and that I was obsessed with him and that, you know, I... Don't know if I said this, but I'm I'm sure it was clear that, that I did what guys do. Yeah, sure. With sexual images yeah. and fantasies. Yeah. And so I finally said to him, So do you think I might be homosexual? No, that's not what I said. Scratch that. I said wasn't that. I wouldn't have said that. I said, Do you think what I'm describing do you think <laughs> I could have a could this be a crush? Yeah. I have a crush on this person. Yeah,
0: that's a crucial difference. You yeah, just yeah. made that's a very important difference, yeah.
1: And he he smiled and chuckled and he said, "Yeah, Jonathan, that sure sounds like a crush to me." Mm-hmm. So then I put that away for a bit. Um my main strategy at this stage was to try never to think about it, but it would come roaring out of the basement yeah. sometimes in these panic attacks. Um but then when I was just turning 25, uh, right around my birthday, by then I'd become another of my friendships with women and another case where she was lovely and we were a good match and I would take her on dates and peck her on the cheek and disappear as fast as I could mm-hmm. at 11 p.m. And it became clear to me that um, I would either have to dump her and lie about it Or finally tell her something about why this wasn't working out. So one night we went out for dinner and um, she pretty much demanded to know where we stood. And we walked around the block and around the block and around the block while I hemmed and hawed and she waited, pressing me with her silence. And I finally blurted out, well, I I think I might be homosexual, but I'm going to see someone about it. And that felt at the time like I wasn't even sure I believed it myself. And there was, in that period, there were, there were a few months of dreams, strange dreams about getting gang raped mm-hmm. by guys. And there was, now I'm not dreaming, but I'm in my kitchen cleaning up and suddenly I'm flooded with the sensation. I don't want to be gay. I don't want to be gay. Please don't make me gay. Um. Because you've got to remember, 1985, if you were gay and loved someone, you were going to die.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. I was going to mention that. Yeah, it was a really... uh,
1: It was was just, it was terrible. Yeah. Love meant death. So the inversion was continuing, but it was now continuing in the real world, turning love into death um, and sex into fear. But that all blew away very amazingly quickly, and that's when I, that was the... That was the blowing right through the closet, and um, the prison walls just evaporated and and there I was. It was like being born you know at age twenty five it was I would never say that anyone should go through what I did, though many people did many straight people tell me they go through personality inversions of whatever sort um, but there was a kind of magic to the year. When it finally all ended and I could see the world right, it was kind of like if you've seen The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. You know, that famous moment, right? The screen breaks into color. Mm-hmm. And imagine the surprise that was in mm-hmm. 1939 or whenever yeah. it was. Um, and and that was an amazing experience.
0: So what, what did you do immediately afterwards? I can think that there was a lot of sort of... Uh, I mean, I, again, sort of pent-up sexual energy. What what did you do with your newfound freedom?
1: There was. I didn't know what to do with a lot of that because I didn't know how to have sex. And remember, right, this is yeah. someone I'd never had any sexual experience. I'd never dated. I'd never done anything, um, and I was terribly frightened about AIDS.
0: Yeah, I would have been too. I, you know, uh, I was. I was or, too, and I was a heterosexual.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, you would. You know, you'd go to the gym. And if someone wasn 't there for a week, you would be afraid to ask if they were still alive because sometimes they were dead, mm-hmm. just like that um, so uh, i was i wouldn 't say I had one of these sexual awakenings that some people do where they just rush out and do a whole lot of stuff. I was very slow and very tentative and but but I will tell you that I still remember the Unbridled joy I felt when that first night when I was 25 or 26, when a guy, slightly older, good looking man in his 20s, took me home and seduced me. And I realized, you know what? The plumbing works.
0: <laughs> yeah. I bet that was a good moment. I really do bet that was a good moment. Yeah. Well,
1: one of the, you know, I had no shortage of. Inverted theories to explain my bizarre condition yeah. in my teens and early 20s. And one of them was that I was impotent. Yeah. Now, I was walking around with erections half the time.
0: <laughs> I, <laughs> I think most people
1: do. But, yeah. but, of course, I couldn't get it up with a woman. Right. So, that's, I figured, well, you know, in my case... The plumbing just doesn't work. Yeah,
0: but I guess I guess the thing I'm interested in is how did you learn about gay culture? Because there are a lot of different gay subcultures, and uh, depending on where you are and what you want to do. Um, and I know you're married now, and so on and so forth. I'm just interested, you know. And, and you kind of have to learn the ropes in these things. It's a little bit like being a heterosexual, because you know there are pickup bars, or you can get you to go to church and meet a nice girl, or you know there are lots of ways to be a heterosexual. How, how did you navigate your way in this sort of com- complicated, complicated it terrain? Was-
1: what a great question. It was like learning a second language when you're in your 20s instead of in, you know, in your five, six, seven. Yeah. Um, because t- 28, 30, that is really too old to be having your first experiences yeah. with the language of love. Um, remember, I was not someone who had been able to simulate a love life with a woman as a lot of gay men can. Um, so I was starting from scratch. And I was a slow learner um, because I was frightened. On the other hand, I had some amazing mentorship from a cousin, an older cousin who is gay, who, by some wonderful quirk of the universe, I'd never met before. Uh, He appeared when I was 25. He found himself working in Washington where I was. He appeared right then when I was, as they say, coming out. Um, when the world turned right side up and he was the first person who said to me what should have been obvious when I told him that, um, that I'd had this obsession with muscles and had just always wanted to be a, you know, a muscle God and was obsessed with that. Um, one of my many ruses, as I say, there really is no shortage is that (laughs) it wasn't that I was in love with this guy, Paul or Superman or whoever, it's that I wanted to be them and hated myself for not being able to be them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nuts, right? But it worked. So anyway, I said, I have this obsession with being like a, a physical god, a muscle guide. He just looked at me and he said, you dummy, that's not who you want to be, that's who you want to marry. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and you probably said, he's the smartest person on the earth.
1: <laughs> I don't need I his did, therapist it was, it anymore. Was, it was all new to me. The only advantage of starting this process much too late is you've grown up enough to have a diary and to be a little bit more self-aware. But but it was tentative because of AIDS and because of me. Yeah. Uh, it took me, I didn't get have my first long-term relationship until, I mean, serious relationship until I was 33. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have my first long-term relationship until Michael when I was 36. Right. And he's the man I'm married to. Right, right. Um, but he's, he's done a lot of coaching, too, along <laughs> yeah, the way. That, yeah. Um, well,
0: I mean, yeah. I mean, what's interesting to me about that is, uh, you know, that you, you live, I mean, in, in a way, if it weren't for the fact that you hadn't had sex until quite late, your story is kind of a traditional one of pairing. Let's put it that way. You, you 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 go out with some people, you meet someone you love, you marry them, and then you're in a long-term relationship with them. That's pretty normal.
1: You know, to me, it still feels like a miracle. Yeah. Because, um, I just turned 53, and 25 years is still almost half my life. Yeah, that's right. Recently, it was most of my life. and And everything that even most messed-up, straight people take for granted, I assume, was forever out of reach for me. Yeah. I believe that I would never have the capability to love, to marry, to have a family. So, to me, the fact that I can wake up today, this week, and know that three days ago, the state of Minnesota enacted gay marriage and gave the young gay girls and boys of Minnesota a future in family, in love, um, it's just a miracle to me. Yeah.
0: Well, that's a, I'm, I'm, i got a big smile on my face, which you can't see, obviously, but uh, I'm really happy for you. <laughs> I say, I've, I've done a lot of these interviews, but rarely do I feel extraordinarily happy for the author. <laughs>
1: well, I can, I can only tell you that I feel like I've been given this incredible gift to be alive yeah. when I am now. You know, Marshall, if, if you stop and think about it, we are the last generation, the only, in fact, not the last, the only generation in American history... That will straddle completely the divide between the world when homosexuality was a sickness, um, a perversion, a sin, and a crime. And when the idea of a man marrying a man or a woman marrying a woman was literally unthinkable. That's the world we knew for all of our young adulthood. Um, And the second half of our lives are going to be in a world where gay people are getting married. right? right. Uh, and young gay people, the most important part of it, the reason I'm a gay marriage supporter, one of the main ones, is for these kids that I was one of. They'll all have a future in love. And mm-hmm. we're, we're the only generation that is has the gift of having seen that. For all previous generations, marriage and family and love for gay people was unthinkable. And for all generations from here on, gay marriage will just seem like an entitlement. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, your life story kind of mirrors exactly that. One of the things, I'm a historian, and one of the things I always tell my students is that um, it's often the case that uh, right-thinking people hold views which we now think are barbaric, and the examples that are always given are, you know, Lincoln did not think that black people were like white people, um, you know, Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist, and so on and so forth, and I always challenge them with the notion, which one of your values will be looked upon in 150 years as barbaric? And, you know, you're right, I mean, your life is just like this, there was a time in your life when you just couldn't conceive of this, just as the United States, and nobody could conceive it, and now... It's just all changed. Just like, I mean, I look back, was I homophobic? No, I wasn't really homophobic. Did I think that homosexuality was weird? I certainly thought, I mean, everyone in my context thought it was weird. Uh, Did I think it was a sin or whatever? I don't know. I I didn't really think about it. I just wasn't aware of it. The idea of gay marriage never occurred to me, ever. I mean, it was just, that was off the table. No one mentioned it. It it was just, yeah, I mean, it's it's a quite remarkable turn of events.
1: I got involved in the gay marriage debate. In 1995, um, when I worked for The Economist, and I'm proud to say that I authored, though anonymously, the Economist cover that came out for Gay Marriage, the first major publication um, to do so. New Republic had, but they weren't of the same scale. Um, and my father at the time, who was not homophobic, who accepted the fact that I was gay, counseled me, said, do not write about same-sex marriage, because this is such a crazy idea and such an impossible idea that, that you will marginalize yourself as a journalist. No one will take you seriously anymore if you write about this thing. Yeah. And that was the world in sixteen years ago.
0: I'm 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 amazed actually by my fellow Americans, because you know, again, I'm from the Midwest and this was kind of a conservative place and I went to school in Iowa and then I taught for a long time at the University of Iowa. Iowa is a particularly interesting case because you, mean, I, you know, I just would never have expected the people of Idaho to, to, just to accept gay marriage, and basically they do now. And, and yeah, I, it's yeah, just yeah. I never would have predicted it, never.
1: It's it's funny, Marshall. I would never have imagined it would go this fast, but the most overwhelming sensation I often feel is gratitude toward my country. Um, you know, for the longest time, um, no one listened, no one cared. Um But we reach the hearts of our fellow citizens, gay people, and when they come around, boy, do they come around. My grandmother um, emigrated to the United States in 1910 when she was 16 years old from Poland, Mm -hmm. and um, she was saved from the fires of the Holocaust by being here, something I'm grateful for every day. Uh, My father went in one generation from poor in New York, welfare, single mother, nothing to his name, to prosperous lawyer, um, on the VA bill. And now my generational story is my own fantastic transition, um, where but America? Do these yeah, stories no, happen? It's,
0: it is truly, you know, if you mentioned Poland, I have said this before on one or another interview, but I had a friend who was Poland, from Poland and he, he was in graduate school with me. And just as he was, he'd been in the United States for many years and spent time in St. Louis and Cambridge and so on and so forth. And he, he said to me, you know what, I've been here for a long time and I've determined this. America is not a nation or a country. It's an experiment. And I said, you know, I think you're right.
1: <laughs> People come here and, and reinvent themselves. Yeah, it is amazing. And the country reinvents itself. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. yeah, that's right. Although we get so many things wrong in the short run, um, and sometimes with slavery and racism, much more than the short sure. run, yeah. there is no country or community in the world that. In the longer run, that I would rather entrust my destiny to. Oh yeah, I agree. I,
0: I agree with that completely. Yes, I absolutely do. Um, I also wanted before we close, I wanted to say uh, uh, that your experience has led to some sort of firm beliefs about uh, homosexuality and about policy positions. I mean, we've it, it has policy implications that inform your writing, and one of them is that you're a supporter of gay marriage, and, uh, and another one has to do, and this is in the book, uh, with um, uh, the origins of homosexuality. That is, is it? Is it? it do you learn to be a homosexual or are you born homosexual, that kind of thing?
1: Well, one of the things I, that I hope that the book would do um, is help people understand if they're straight and if they have this notion that, you know, we somehow choose this, um, that that's ludicrous. That it's just so obvious from such a young age. My earliest memories are tied up with this crush I had on a cartoon character called Sinbad Jr., um, and I hope that anyone who reads this, um, no matter what beliefs they walk in the door with, will walk away understanding that that this is a deep and structural part of, of our being, if, yeah. if we're gay. And that attempting to suppress it is attempting to suppress and, and twist your entire personality.
0: Yeah. I know that when I was thinking about this question, I I, I looked around and I thought kind of in a, rationalist utilitarian fashion who in their right mind would choose this given the, I mean this was in the you know the 80s given the amount of discrimination that, that homosexuals have to suffer yeah I mean yeah. it's just it's loopy you would choose this I mean why not just like you know poke a, a, a pen in your eye it just doesn't yeah. make sense
1: and of know? course people would try so desperately to change it yeah. or they would try so desperately to, to deny it yeah the, the whole the whole anti-gay story never held together at all for even ten seconds, mm-hmm. if you stop to think about it. I and mean, what were we? Were we sick? Well, in that case, we deserve compassion, not right. condemnation. Yeah, right? Were we sinners? Well, in that case, why were we hated? Whether we actually committed the sin or not. Right. Um, were we? Did we choose it? Well, why would anyone choose it? And if if you choose to, how would you choose, Marshall, to get? If, if you weren't straight, to get an erection mm-hmm. around a woman. Yeah. I mean, it never made sense. Yeah. The reason for that is that heterosexuals never bothered themselves for as long as 10 seconds as a, at a stretch to bother their consciences about gay people. And yeah, that's what's yeah. changed in America in yeah. the last few years.
0: Right. That's exactly right. They just didn't, I mean, again, I don't want to blame them all. They just, it's, it was overwhelming ignorance. It, really, it kind of reminds me of, you know, I study Russia and early modern Russia. And early modern Russians were incredibly anti-Semitic. But there were no Jews in early modern Russia. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. like learned it from the Greeks or something. I don't know. that. It's
1: a common observation. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the main reason that people give for changing their mind on gay marriage is knowing someone who's gay.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I want to draw one parallel, um, actually, from my own life. And, you know, I think that people who read this book uh, may recognize a kind of amazing personal transformation. Um, uh, reading your book, it reminded me of my own experience in the sense that uh, – I was a, a drug addict and alcoholic, and for years and years, decades, I denied that, um, and it was really a lot like your experience. Um, I, I just could not accept the fact that uh, my life was ruled by these substances, and uh, and I, when I finally, you know, w- in this case, went to AA, it really was like the color sort of just appeared in my life, and finally, I was just. It just seemed, all seemed it obvious. an
1: Ordinary alcoholic. Yeah, exactly. It just seemed obvious issue. to me.
0: In in hindsight, it was like, well, obviously, and everybody around me knew it. You know, the, you, and, the, and, and it was just it, it, my. I guess what I'm trying to say is that my denial ran so deep that I didn't even recognize it as denial. If you see, that's amazing.
1: Neither did I, of course. <laughs> there was nothing to deny.
0: Yeah, I was just like, well, I drink, and that's it. I also
1: compare this state to being like a fish in a fish tank. You're completely isolated from the world, yet somehow it all seems transparent. Yeah. You don't don't understand yourself as denying anything Mm -hmm. or trapped. You see it all. Did you tell yourself lots of crazy theories and stories about... Oh, my God. Oh, my
0: God. Yeah. I mean, I had... oh. It it goes on and on. I'm a pretty clever guy. So I was able to say, well, it has a therapeutic aspect or has a social aspect or, you know, everybody does this or, you know, and these were things which are demonstrably not true. Or usually what I told myself is that, you know, if I drank accessories, drugs to excess, and I got into trouble, which I did frequently, I would say it was somebody else's fault. You know, that was my sort of standard ploy. People were messing with me. That was the problem. It wasn't that I was not acting appropriately because whenever I drank, I broke out in stupid. Uh, I just, that, that never occurred to me um, until basically at the end when I, I had to face it. And then I went to a room full of people who said basically that they had had the same experience and that I didn't have to live that way. And if I would just accept the truth and do these things, then I could live what is really kind of a, I don't want to say normal, but you know, a, a good life. Uh, and,
1: and did you find that when you finally made that admission, that, that, The world you now lived in was so utterly different from the world you had feared. I mean, I had feared making this transition because whatever was across that bridge, I knew it was very, very scary, you know, out there in the world without my denial. Um, That was the most humiliating thing to me about these 25 years of denial is that part of me knew that I held the key. I was my own prison warden and that I could walk away at any time. Now, I would have denied that at the time. I didn't believe it. Um, but, but it was true. I was paralyzed by fear of, of what giving up my denial would mean. And then when I gave it up, suddenly, what was I afraid of? Did you have that experience?
0: Oh, I had almost exactly that experience. The idea of not drinking was so, or not using drugs was so, um, fear-making for me, so frightening that I couldn't really even think it. it. It never was really an option until right at the end. That, that was the last thing I was going to do because that
1: wasn't the problem. <laughs> That's exactly what the I. The problem was people
0: were messing with me.
1: <laughs> I was going to try everything but that. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. And then Why you know, the, lots, lots of you do lots of tricks. We you know alcoholics and drug addicts do lots of tricks with the alcohol. You know, drink different thing, drink on different days, set limits, and you know, I mean, these are typical alcoholic behavior. And I was doing all of them. And when I first came into AA, one of the things I realized that I hadn't invented any of this stuff. Everybody had done it. <laughs> you know, everybody, everybody who's an alcoholic did these things.
1: So there you are. The monster becomes a cliche. Over well, you
0: that. know, one of the things you mentioned earlier is I suffered from, and you said, you know, in your own experience, you thought, well, I have this disease that nobody else has. In AA, we talk about terminal uniqueness. <laughs> you think <laughs> you're just different word. than everybody. You know, when in fact you walk right. into a group of alcoholics, and they've all done the same thing, exactly the same thing. It's like you're not unique at all. You're not special. You have this disease, and, and then there—that's the other parallel is. I didn't choose to become an alcoholic. Lord knows. It was horrible. <laughs> I hated it. And uh, I, I would, you know, I don't think people choose that.
1: So why in your case were you so desperate to deny the one thing that was most obviously true?
0: Well, because I thought I really, ne- I mean, I did really need it. I needed it to get by in the world. You know, one of the things alcoholics say is that, you know, it worked for a long time. And it did. You know, it enabled me to be with other people and to live life in a way that was semi-comfortable until it didn't. You know, because alcoholism is the kind of progressive thing. It gets worse. And uh, I was beginning to check out because I was drinking more and using drugs more. And um, so, you know, again, it worked for a long time. I remember the first time I had a drink, it felt like I was free. It was like, oh, look, I can talk to people. I'm not ashamed anymore. It was just like that. I was like, This is terrific. I love it. I found what I want to do for the rest of my life. And you talk about that. And one thing I really identified was was that not growing up. I mean, I did this until I was, you know, I was in my, I was, I was, um, I was forty when I, I you know, I, I was I used to brag that I did the same things when I was forty that I did when I was eighteen. I drink, I play basketball, I study, and I you know, have girls. That's it. That was my life. And I'm like, right. this is the way people should live.
1: It's a childhood that never ends. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I was like,
0: and people would look at me like, What are you doing? And I'm like, well, this is the way people should live. You guys are just wrong. And yeah, it was the scales really did fall from my eyes. And, I, you know, my life is obviously entirely different now. Um, but it was frightening. It was a frightening transition to make, you know, to, to realize all those things about yourself and the lies that you told yourself without even knowing you were telling the lies. It's just kind of a remarkable thing.
1: Well, I think I said this at the outset, Marshall, but um, I, I have to come back to it now. The biggest surprise consistently that I've had with this book, from the day the first person I showed it to um, or maybe the second was my agent, um, who immediately said, you know, this is not a gay book. I, can, I, had a, I understand this from when I was young. And I hear this again and again and again. It comes in emails just yesterday, straight people saying that they went through something like this. And, and to be honest, b- because I experienced my inversion so intensely around homosexuality, it's very hard for me to imagine how it can be about something else or how a straight person can live through anything analogous to what I did. But I've now become convinced by yeah. sheer force of testimony and evidence right. that they do all the time. Um, right. These forms of denial, that's that's really what this book does. It tries to map from the inside the the extraordinary power of the human mind to deny what the human soul actually needs. Yeah. Um, that's right. Extraordinary. I
0: I I mean, I think that's exactly right. You know, Russians have this expression: "Be happy in your illusions." Unfortunately, you can't be happy in your illusions for very long. Eventually, the truth kind of seeps in, and you have to face it. And it takes a long time to do that. When you're young and strong, you can kind of do it. But when the older I got, the more I was like, you know, I can't, I can't put up this front anymore. I don't have the energy for it.
1: Well, my last illusion of terminal uniqueness (laughs) was when I wrote this book. I thought, well. Um, I wasn't unique as a gay person in denial, but this this book and this experience of inversion is, is in many ways unique. Mm-hmm. And it is in the details, but, but then that illusion shattered too when I realized that there's so many non-gay versions of this. Yeah. Um,
0: well, it's a great book. I'm really happy that you um, uh, wrote it. And, and did I mention
1: it's it. only $1.99?
0: $1.99, man, for the low, low price of, how do we do it? Volume! The, yeah. um, <laughs> the yeah, so, yeah. So yeah, you can go get the book on, on basically everywhere. You just go yeah. online and you can get it everywhere. It's, it's on every site, practically. So, it's I encourage people to go get it. Yeah. And
1: then write me uh, yeah. a letter. I have a website or post a Facebook Like, There's a Facebook page. com slash denial book and, and tell your story. What I'd love to see happen is for this book gradually to become a, a gathering point for a lot of the stories that people have that don't tell. Yeah about their inversions. Well,
0: that, that would that would be terrific. That would, that would really be terrific. Um, let, let me, uh, before we close the interview, let me ask our traditional final question on the NewBooks Network, and that is, what are you working on now? What's up?
1: I am a journalist, so I always work on multiple things. Mm-hmm. So right now I'm doing some policy work for the Brookings Institution where I'm a guest scholar on the movement to legalize marijuana and its implications, which is really interesting. It's kind of like gay marriage. Mm -hmm. I'm helping to revive a nonprofit called the Institute for American Values. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to try to end the conflict between um, gay equality and family values forever. Cool. You can do that in five to seven years. So go to the institutes called AmericanValues.org and you can learn about that. There's a letter from me up there. Um, and I'm, I always do journalism. Yep. I have a, an article in today's USA Today about why the gay marriage revolution is winning, and it's because it's a conservative revolution. It is.
0: It's funny. I used to work with Ross Douthat. You knew who Ross Douthat is. And he would tell me the various reasons that he was against a, – he's a conservative guy, raised Catholic, and against gay marriage. And at the end of it, I would just listen to him and say, then you're for gay marriage, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. So – yeah, I never quite got it. So anyway, we've been talking with Jonathan Rauch about his terrific book, Denial, My 25 Years Without a Soul. Uh, I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to this podcast. But especially I want to thank Jonathan for being on the show. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. It was a great treat.
0: All right. Take care.